When many of us think about getting prepared to share our faith, it can sort of feel like getting prepared for a job interview. The desire to get it right, the pressure to say the right thing, the significance of the interaction impacting the future. And many of us have family members that at Christmas or Thanksgiving or really anytime we get together, they sort of drop in their religious experience or they tell their one church story or they drop in a rhetorical question about faith in the conversation. And before you can start the conversation, they sort of change the subject and things move on. And again, they may or may not want to have an actual conversation, um, but they say things like, so you're the Bible person, right? Oh, you're the church girl. You probably can't on Sunday because of church. Or I used to go to church, insert their bad church experience. And today we're continuing a series and we're in part three of a series called Prepared. And the goal of the series is really to help us to be prepared with some important anchor points of our faith. That the, when, when opportunities come our way, not if, but when opportunities come our way, we'll be prepared to, to move from sort of just passing comments to conversations that may percolate over time. Now, this series will not answer all the complex questions about faith, but it's hopefully going to help us to be prepared to have some ways to move the conversation forward that may just progress over time. Now, if you're new or you're not a Jesus follower yet, we're really glad you're here. In fact, this might be a great series for you to be a part of because you can get a behind the scenes look at what we believe and maybe more importantly, why we believe it. An idea for this series comes from some writings from Peter. Um, Peter followed Jesus really closely. He was an eyewitness to all of Jesus' ministry. And then he was one of the first people to look into an empty tomb. So Peter became a pretty important church leader in the early church. And so he wrote a couple letters. And in his first letter, he sort of gives us some context for what we're talking about in this series. We're going to be in 1 Peter. We're also going to be in 2 Peter a little bit. If you want to open up the Bible app, you can go to the More menu option, select Events, and then you can find our church. We'll also have the notes and verses in the notes section of the chat. And we'll also have them on the screen as well. First Peter chapter three, again, he gives us some context. Verse 15, he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And here's what Peter is not saying. He's not saying you need to be prepared to give an answer to every question. He's not saying you need to be able to explain the Christian worldview perfectly. He's not saying you need to be prepared to um, explain the Bible or creation or um, the ark or revelation. He's not saying you need to give a defense for every Christian who doesn't act properly. He's not saying you need to give a defense for Christians who have acted hypocritically in previous centuries. But what Peter is saying is we should be prepared to explain the hope that we have and the reason why we are following Jesus. So today we're gonna to talk about really the most difficult topic or subject when it comes to being prepared to share your faith, the problem of pain. And this is really emotional for most people. And this is really one of the most powerful ways to sort of stiff arm God and to resist the idea of a good God. And I understand that and I get that. Um, but before we get jump in today, um, really today's message is probably not gonna be immediately helpful for a couple different groups of people. Number one, if you are watching today and you're having a difficult time, you're going through a difficult circumstance or situation and you're struggling with a good God or does God even love you and is he there for you? Today's message might not be super helpful for you. Um, the second group of people are really the people that maybe you have a friend that you're talking to and they're going through a difficult time and they're having a difficult time believing in God, that, a God that loves them. Or maybe they're having a hard time believing in the existence of God at all. And really, uh, you know, they might have things with their children, they might have things with their family going on, whatever that thing might be. But this series might not be, or this message today might not be super helpful or immediately helpful to them. But really today's message is for two groups of people. It's for Jesus followers, so that we can be prepared for people who may have sort of created a defense mechanism around this problem, to sort of move the conversation on. 
or maybe um, for those of you who have created the defense mechanism, this this series, this message might be helpful for you. If you've sort of created this defense mechanism so that you can sort of just change the subject and sort of move away from the idea of a good God. And maybe you can say, well, I don't believe that. I don't. There's no way I can believe that because there's just so much pain and suffering in the world. And we see it sort of on a daily basis. And we're seeing it right now during this COVID time. Or maybe some of you have said, well, I've traveled to different parts of the world or I've lived in different parts of the world. I've seen too much. There's no way that I can believe in a good loving God with all this pain and suffering around. So um, really that, that is one of the most prominent and significant ways to sort of stiff arm God, the church um, and Christians is the idea of pain and suffering. However, we think that there is a response and pain and suffering don't have to be a reason to, to not believe in a good God. That, that we're going to talk about sort of the response that we think we can be prepared to have. And this isn't to win an argument. This isn't even to have an argument or to argue at all. That Christians have thought about this. And throughout the centuries, Christians have wrestled with this. That pain, pain and suffering in the world doesn't have to be a reason to put God in the rearview mirror of your life. So as we sort of get started here, a question for you to, as we start. If you could, would you remove all evil or everything bad in the world right now? Like if you could sort of push a button and everything bad in the world would sort of just go away, would you push it? Now, before you answer, have you ever done anything bad? Have your children ever done anything bad? Because if you would hesitate in that moment to push the button to remove all the evil in the world, is it possible that maybe God has a reason that he wouldn't remove all the evil in the world? That, yeah, like we would like to get rid of all the evil in the world, but if we have to get rid of all the evil in the world, that might start with me. And that might mean all the people I love and the people I care about and the people I know, my children, my grandma. It might just mean a lot of people. And so, yeah, maybe I would hesitate a little bit. And so if you have a good reason to not get rid of all the evil in the world immediately, maybe it's possible that God has a reason as well. And Christians believe that you and I are that reason. That the reason that God doesn't get rid of all the evil in the world is the same reason that I don't want to get rid of all the evil in the world. It would impact me and everyone I know and everyone I care about. And that would be a problem. And the scripture teaches and Christians have always believed that God is patient with evil. That he is as heartbroken over evil as we are, but he is patient with evil. And the reason that he waits is the same reason that you and I would be hesitant. He waits and he has a reason for it. And the reason is you and the reason is me. That Peter, who walked with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who talked with Jesus, Peter, who eventually looked into an empty tomb, and Peter, who wrote what we read earlier, that we need to be prepared to explain the reason for the hope that we have. Peter also wrote this, to this in a second letter to Christians in the first century. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. That God is as disturbed about evil as you are. That you haven't pointed out any evil in the world that God didn't already see and God didn't already know was going to happen. And Christians believe that God knows, God cares, God feels, and God has experienced or stepped down to experience all our pain and suffering. And the reason that God isn't removing pain and evil in the world as quickly as we might like it's because God is patient with you, that he doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but everyone to repent. So is it possible that if you have a good reason to hesitate, that God might have a good reason to hesitate as well? That Christians believe that God has 7.8 billion reasons to hesitate, that you and I are the reason. 
So this whole idea that, you know, we don't want to remove bad things from the world because I would be the first one removed. It sort of has a little bit of hypocrisy really for all of us, whether you, me, Christian, non-Christian, people of any religious faith, that, that complaining about the idea of evil in the world really has a, a little bit of an element of hypocrisy in it. And I found this interesting illustration that I think will help us to maybe see this. Um, anytime we see injustice in the world, we sort of want a can of justice. So we can sort of just spray and get rid of that injustice. Whether it's someone mistreating children, spray, you know, get rid of that person. That's unjust. Maybe it's government officials or politicians who don't pay their taxes. Well, spray to kind of get rid of them, right? Um, it's, it's maybe political a little bit. It's, you know, Republicans or Democrats. Maybe for some of you, it's Republicans and Democrats. You want both of them. But whenever we see injustice, I want to be able to get my can of justice and sort of be able to control it with this can. But I want it the way that I evaluate and manage or measure injustice, that I want to be able to spray it. Because when I spray it, it actually smells pretty good. But the other thing is that we also want a can of bad spray. That anytime we see something bad, we want to be able to spray it to sort of identify it or label it as bad. You know, those people kind of hang around playgrounds or parks that want to sell drugs to kids? Bad, right? I just want to label them as bad. Um, anyone who abuses someone else? Bad. Um, anyone who traffics children or people? Bad. Uh, maybe double spray them. Ju unjust too, right? Um, the key is that I want to hold both of these cans. I want to hold the can of justice and the bad spray because I don't want you to hold the cans. And do you know why I don't want you to hold the cans? Because you might spray me because I've been unjust and I've been bad. But we especially don't want God to hold either one of these cans, right? Because he could spray all of us with these cans. So let me ask you a question. In the chat, we'd love for you to respond to this question. Um, we'll give you a little bit of time to jump in the chat real quick here. But basically the question is, if you have ever done anything that could be considered unjust by another person, I want you to jump in the chat and click that button there. Okay, responded. Okay, that was just the warm-up question. Here's the real question. If you have ever done anything bad in your life, click that button. That we want to be the one holding the can because we don't want to be sprayed ourselves. But we don't want God to do this. And we really don't want God to get rid of everything evil in the world, even though we might think we do. Because that would first start with me and everyone I know and everyone that I care about. And so there's a little bit, again, a little bit of an element of hypocrisy that sort of leads us to two important assumptions. Assumption number one is that there's certain things should not be. And this is almost a universal assumption across the world, that there are certain things that should not be. And that's the reason that we want a can of justice, that there are certain things that should not be. That's also why we want a can of bad spray, because there are certain things that should not be. And for C.S. Lewis, this whole idea of should and should not was actually sort of what pushed him towards being a theist, from being an atheist. That this C.S. Lewis, if you don't know, he was a famous um, writer and sort of thinker and scholar. Eventually, he became a theologian, but he sort of moved from being an atheist to then becoming a theist. Not quite a Christian just yet, but he became a theist, all based on the assumption that should and should not is sort of what broke through his, his barriers to being a Christian or to being a, believing in the existence of God. That in his books, especially Mere Christianity, but several others as well, he sort of realized that there was something in him that thought other people should do certain things. And so he started to ask the question, well, where did should come from? Where did this idea of should come from? Because if I made it up, I shouldn't try to hold other people accountable to this standard. But if I didn't make it up, it's almost as if someone put should and should not inside of me, but also inside of the people around me. And it's sort of a similar or same should and should not or ought not not. 
And so in fact, it really does again, seem like there's a global sense of should and should not. So if it came from somewhere else, where did it come from, right? Well, that's the whole question. And so this whole idea of injustice and pain and suffering, sin and the brokenness and evil in the world, this is actually what sort of helped push C.S. Lewis to finally raising his eyes and recognizing there was a creator God and a moral judge of the universe. And at this point, he wasn't really ready to say that Jesus was the son of God yet. It wasn't quite to that place yet. But he recognized the unavoidable, inescapable sense that should and should not came from somewhere outside of himself. And the fact that you and I want a can of justice or bad spray is sort of an indicator of the fact or evidence of the fact that there's this sense of should and should not out there and things aren't right and we can identify that. And that really there's a sort of a basic assumption that there's a standard that's widely recognized among the world of what should and should not is supposed to be. Here's what C.S. Lewis said in a couple passages from Mere Christianity. He said, quarreling means trying to show the other man, showing that the other man is wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. That every time you quarrel, you're sort of agreeing upon that there's this standard of what right and wrong really are. Every time you quarrel, you start recognizing that there is an agreed upon standard somewhere out there, and we're trying to figure out what exactly it is. So where did that come from? Well, C.S. Lewis says this, supposing you hear a cry for help from a man in danger, you will probably feel two desires. One desire to give help due to your herd instinct, the other desire to keep out of danger due to your instinct for self-preservation. That you hear someone crying for help and you have this sort of internal desire that I should go and help them. But then we also have this internal desire saying, but if I go and help, I might be in danger of needing help as well. He continues on, but you will find inside of you, in addition to these two impulses, a third thing, which tells you that you ought to follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. And it was sort of this dilemma inside C.S. Lewis that sort of drove him to realize that as much as evil in the world might be an argument against the existence of God, it might be possible that our ability to recognize that things are not the way they should be actually is an argument for the existence of God and for a moral lawgiver at the very least. And so this leads us to our second assumption. Assumption number two, the world is broken. That not just humans, but the whole world is broken. That there's tornadoes and tsunamis and hurricanes and cancer and a pandemic. And it's not just, it is human behavior, but it's not just human behavior. It's beyond human behavior. And we sort of all recognize that. And that is why, again, we want a can of justice. We want a can of justice because it's not fair that innocent people would suffer. It's not fair that people would be swept away in a tornado or a tsunami. And there's something inside of us that says, that's not right. That's not the way things should be. This world is broken. That there's something in this world that is broken. There's something inside of me that is broken that I can't even follow my own laws and rules. And, and I can't even follow the law sometimes, even though I agree with the law that I'm broken and this world is broken. We can all sort of recognize that. Our desire for justice would give evidence to that fact. But Christians believe since the time of Jesus that the current world is not our final world. That Jesus would teach us through his parables, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of God is like. Uh, Peter and Paul would reiterate that. The book of Revelation would point to that fact that Christians believe that the world was not started off, did not start off broken, that God gave us our freedom to choose. But then when God handed the world to humanity, we broke the world. But that is not the original or the ultimate version of the world. 
that the current world is the path to the best possible world. And do you know what the best possible world is? The best possible world is where women and men are free to sin, but freely choose not to. The best possible world Jesus would point to, the whole entire New Testament would point to, that the best possible world is a world where there's a knowledge of good and evil, but where humans have been made new and have the freedom to choose, but they freely choose a relationship with God rather than choosing behaviors that would destroy it. Paul describes it this way in Romans, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. That Paul would write in the first century, and he was no stranger to suffering. And for many of us, we sort of wrestle with a good God and an evil world, and myself included. But many times it's actually sort of short-sighted looking at the whole of Christianity. That the people who brought us the message of Jesus into the 21st century, they all suffered. And at the epicenter of Christianity is Jesus who would willingly enter and come into on purpose, extreme suffering, all while not losing faith in God. Verse 19, for all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. That not just humans, but all of creation recognizes things are not as they should be. That there's something different that is going to have to happen. That this is not our final resting place. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, but not by its own choice, but by the one, by the will of the one who subjected it. That when humans sinned, everything under our authority suffered because of it. That it wasn't fair, but it was true. It's sort of like some of us were impacted by the decisions of our parents when we were children, right? Some of you have diseases or you have predispositions to diseases and illnesses because of genetics you inherited from your family. It isn't fair, but it's absolutely true. And in the same way, Christians have always believed that when humans took responsibility for the world and then sinned, our sin impacted the entire world. And we can identify that the world's broken because there's a piece of the image of God inside of all of us, that our should and should not is still inside of us. That in some way, God's spirit and God's presence rests in the heart of every single human being. That we know something's wrong, we know it should be different, and we know it should be better, and we know there's a way forward. And ultimately, we know that if things are going to be fixed, it's going to sort of have to happen at a macro level bigger than us. Continuing on, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And really at this point, there's really never an emotionally satisfying answer to the problem of pain and suffering in the world. That if I gave you some sort of answer that then all of a sudden you'd be like, oh yeah, I'm okay with children suffering. Uh, yeah, I'm okay with there not being enough water for those people. Yeah, I'm okay with cancer and tumors and that kind of stuff. Like now that you give me that answer, I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm fine. And do you know why there will never be, uh, you'll never be okay with an emotionally, emotional answer dealing with this problem of pain? Because there's the image of God inside of you that will never be satisfied with innocent people suffering. And that's the image of God inside of you. That's proof. That's proof that there's evidence that God really does exist, that there is a God who cares about what is should and should not, and he knows that there's things that are broken and that God wants to have a relationship with you. So as we look at COVID-19 infections and death and we look at racial injustice and we look at uh, cancer and tsunamis and tornadoes and we look at selfish people and income equality and third world nations in our world, 
As we look at all the pain and suffering in the world, we can also look to John, who saw what the future world is going to look like. He saw what the final world is going to look like. And we can pray like him. In Revelation chapter 22, he said, Come, Lord Jesus. Which sort of points us back to the fact of a resurrected, alive Jesus. It points us back to the anchor point of our faith. And it also looks back to the promise that we sort of talked about at the beginning. That Jesus will bring and establish a brand new, renewed world without pain or suffering. That in this world, we're going to continue to fight against injustice. We're going to continue to do everything we can to make things right in this world. And we're going to continue to do, again, all that we can. But in the midst of this decaying and dying world, we realize that our hope is not us. That we recognize in the midst of this decaying world that our hope is in Jesus bringing us a renewed world. And ultimately our hope is, come Lord Jesus. And this is really what Christians have taught for 2,000 years. That pain and suffering is not evidence of the absence of God. It is evidence that we know things aren't right and we know that things are, should be better. That if God removed evil from the world, he would have to start with me. He'd have to begin with me. I believe God entered this world through his son Jesus to forgive me rather than remove me. I believe he died on the cross for my sin and he rose from the dead. And until Jesus brings a renewed world, we will pray, come Lord Jesus. So with all that you've seen, with all that you've experienced, with all that you will experience, you can maintain hope in our heavenly father and in his son, Jesus. As we get ready to pray, I just want to give a moment, um, maybe for some of you to put your trust in Jesus for the first time. Maybe to put your hope in something beyond this world. And this isn't about pressure. This isn't about guilt. This is just about an opportunity for you to put your hope in Jesus. So I want you just to simply pray a prayer similar to what I'm praying. The, the words that I'm praying aren't magical or special. They're just a way to express us putting our hope in God. So I'd encourage you to pray along with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he died for my sin. He died for my brokenness. He died for the brokenness of the whole world. And I want to put my hope in him today. I don't want to put my hope in anything in this world, in myself, in my money, in my stuff, in some other people and politicians. But God, I want to put my hope in you. And if my hope tends to wander, if my hope wanders to something else, would you help me to see that? And would you help me to put my hope back in you? And maybe for the rest of us, God, we're just thankful that um, you are doing so many amazing things in the world, that we get an opportunity to partner with so many great organizations who are doing great things in the world, to help right wrongs, to help fix injustice around us. That when things aren't right, we can see injustice. And when we're heartbroken, would you remind us of your message of love and redemption for everyone in the world. And while we fight for injustice and while we fight for what's right, we fight for the things that need to change. We recognize that apart from you, it'll never be completely right. And so today we pray, come Lord Jesus. And in this moment, would you help remove the blinders from our eyes? For those of us who have used pain and suffering as an excuse to resist you, for those of us who are just too comfortable that we don't feel the pain and suffering that is happening all around the world. Would you help move us to action today? 
Would you help us take a step in your direction? Thank you, God, for sending your son into this world. Thank you that you didn't dodge any of the pain and suffering in this world. In fact, you entered into it. And you would be the best person ever who would experience the most pain and the most suffering ever. More than we could ever imagine by dying on a cross for our sins. God, would you please give each one of us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard. And God, would you also give us the courage to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.